Hello, and welcome to the CFA Society San Francisco podcast, where we interview and discuss current topics with leading members of the Bay Area investment community. This week, Tanya Subatang, Senior Membership Manager with CFA Society San Francisco, sits down with Steve Biggs, CFA, Managing Director and Head of Alternative Investments for the Mather Group. Listen in as they discuss alternative investing and private markets. morning, Steve. I'm so excited to have you on our show today. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, let's get to it. So Steve, you are the Managing Director, Head of Alternative Investments at the Mather Group. Tell me about the Mather Group and your role at the firm. So the Mather Group manages about $10 billion for individuals, whether they're high net worth or up to family office size clients. So we've got about $8 billion in high net worth individual assets and about $2 billion for family office clients. We are registered registered with the SEC as an investment advisor, also known as a RAA or Registered Investment Advisor. The firm was founded in 2010, 13 years ago uh, in Chicago and has since grown to this size, both through organic growth and through M&A acquisitions. So I came to the firm about a year ago through an acquisition. We had a, a firm in the Lafayette area, AC Financial Advisors. We managed about $500 million for our individual clients and joined the Mather Group. You know, We had always been had a heavy allocation to alternative investments. Uh, and I've got some of that in my background as well. Started my career on the pension side and had some allocations to... I worked with uh, KKR a little bit and had some allocations to some private equity funds. So we were always a little bit more aggressive in adding private alternatives to client portfolios and using those as a way to diversify and enhance returns. So with the Mather Group, very much a history in low-cost, tax-efficient public market portfolios. Portfolios, which obviously worked very well and they helped grow the firm and you know provide good returns for, for clients. So, but I think we're at the point where it makes sense to have some alternative offerings. So, my role with the firm is to roll out alternative investment platform to all the clients. Now, that's going to look a little bit different for someone with one or two million dollars versus you know a family office client. But there's a number of options out there. So, we're we're about a year into the process. And we've got. Some, some offerings and it's starting to, to get a little bit more aggressive and ramped up with clients. That is, I think, a multi, multi-year multi process and we're, <laughs> we're, we're off to a good start. Well, that sounds good. So obviously, given your background, I'd love to hear how has the market for private investment for individual high net worth investors evolved over the past decade? Yeah, that's a great question because you know you go back to private equity and real estate has been around for, for decades, right? And uh, has always been an important part of portfolio allocation for institutions, especially pensions and endowments, as far as you know, getting a differentiated stream of returns. But when it comes to individuals, it's been a tougher market, right? We've seen he switched over to the high net worth side of the business in 2008. And there were some options for alternative investments, but I don't think any of them were that good that I saw at least. I mean, there were... There were firms, you know, hedge funds trying to come into the space. And just by nature, they're very high fee. And it was just not an efficient way to do it. And, uh, mm. you know, and private markets is also a lot about access to managers. So you need to make sure you have good managers in there. And, you know, the managers weren't necessarily what you would allocate to as an institution. So it, it I think early days, it was expensive and lower quality, but it's, uh, you know, it's certainly improved. I think the 
there was a you know, there's a recognition obviously by private asset managers alternative managers that there is a lot of assets here you know and that it, these are really untapped so you know as as the world has evolved from defined benefit plans to defined contribution plans defined benefit plans always had allocations to alternatives but now it's moved over to the individual and, and less access has taken assets away from defined benefit plans so you know so the managers have looked more towards our part of the world and as wealth managers you know that's that's kind of the sweet spot if you get you know too far down it's kind of it's it's just really challenging not that an individual with less assets should not have access to some of these investments it's just much more of a challenge so so as a result the quality of the offerings has improved significantly since I started in uh, wealth management 15 years ago and we've really started to see the quality of managers come up the fees although alternatives are always going to be more expensive than public markets for a variety of reasons they have come you know more into line where the, the excess fee you're paying over say uh you know a billion dollar endowment fund is not that great that it would make it you know not investable so i think quality has improved quite a bit i mean you've seen stuff in the past non-traded REITs originally were you know almost insured you're going to lose money because they you know they took the money and sent it back out and had extremely high fees and eventually go public and then you know and then really with uh blackstone and in, in 2017 18 that you know BRE came around whole different you know version of the non-traded read we've seen a number number of follow-on options too so i think it's continuing to improve and uh much better opportunities for individuals well that sounds good so you're talking about alternative investments just a little bit ago so what are the challenges to allocating to alternative investments for individual investors yeah well they're not institutions so there's definitely some challenges and i think it starts with education and comfort levels too so you know talking to our advisors and our clients everyone's used to having daily liquidity or the perception of daily liquidity whether markets are as liquid as on a bad day is a good day is uh up for debate but um you know there's a perception that there's you know that there's additional risk with liquidity and there is liquidity risk but it's something that you can protect around by providing ample liquidity in other parts of your portfolio so it's a risk you're getting paid for it's not really a risk I, you know it's it, it's as long as you can manage the liquidity is fine but it does cause concern about the clients so you know it's really kind of getting the education out there and that's what we've found as one of the biggest challenges to getting growing acceptance among the client base you know and then it's liquidity does pose a challenge for some clients so that's that's one of the challenges and it's the structure of the the fund too so if we think about the institution that invests it's a drawdown strategy so you commit to a fund and capital gets called on a fairly regular basis for three years five years until you're fully invested and then the fund life can go 10 years you know up to 15 16 for a venture fund a very long time horizon so you know the, the industry correctly identified that that's probably not an ideal liquidity structure for everyone has come up with the interval fund which may be too liquid right it's by offering quarterly liquidity you're also introducing either a cash drag because you need to have some liquidity there or you're buying public market investments so you're adding correlations to public markets so it's not a perfect structure but you know there's more and more options coming out that may fit people's needs so i think even with the interval fund you're not getting a hundred percent of the illiquidity premium but you are capturing a good amount of it and you are getting exposure to some of those assets whether they're kind of the smaller value part of the market part of the equity markets so you're not necessarily going to get through public equity 
ways. So that's that's a big part of it. And you know, I think it's there's going to be evolution in fund structures, but that's you know that's certainly one of the bigger risks. Um, and and that's you know that's generally what we're dealing with is education and managing liquidity and you know managing size. Well, given everything you've shared with us, how do you see things changing in the coming years? I think there's still a lot of work to do on fund structure. You know, the, what we're using, there's still, you know, the, the drawdown vehicle can still work for the ultra high net worth or, you know, even down come downstream a little bit. But I think this interval fund structure has to progress. So, you know, basically what's being used is a 1940 Act fund. Now, 1940 was a long time ago and no one was thinking about private putting private equity in a, you know, open-ended mutual fund or a 1940 Act mutual fund. So uh, it's great that they have figured this out and being able to get some kind of exposure to it. But I think the industry needs to evolve a little bit. If you look at public markets, they used the 40 Act fund until what late 90s. And you know, eventually some of these fund companies developed a better better wrapper for this. And it was a exchange traded fund or ETF. And you don't see a lot of public market funds as a 40 Act fund being launched anymore. It's, it's all exchange traded funds for a variety of reasons. So I think it's incumbent upon the industry to develop the next structure. You know, how much liquidity do we really need? You know, can you still stay registered? Is we can we do annual liquidity? Is there a way to not have to buy something or sell something at an inopportune time and still and so be able to capture more of the liquidity premium and not keep some of that money in in cash or in short-term instruments or public market equities and deliver the full benefits of a private investment? And I've seen some progress and there's probably ways to do it, but I think there's a lot more, a lot more progress to be made here. I know and it may come from one of the traditional mutual fund companies and not the big alternative manager. I know that there's investment in blockchain. I think Franklin Templeton has been very aggressive in acquiring blockchain companies. So maybe that's the answer. You, you can have a, an active secondary market for private investments without actually offering liquidity through the manager in, in the interim, but s- still providing that to clients because individuals still need some liquidity. You don't have the, if you're an endowment, if you're a pension, you know what your liabilities are with pretty good certainty. If you're an individual, you may have an idea of when you want to retire. If you have kids, you may have an idea when you have college, <laughs> but there's all kinds of other stuff that can come up, right? There's yep. health issues. There's, you know, all everything. So, you know, so by definition, an individual does need a little more liquidity. So I think if we can find some kind of balance between that lockup for 10 to 15 years versus, hey, you can get your money out every three months, you know, you don't need that much liquidity. So, so, so why pay for it? Why pay for something you don't need? So I think that's really the, the developments we'll see, you know, and I think it's going to be, you know, a lot, there's a lot of regulation that has to happen for that to all, all work out. So I think that's going to be the challenge is the technology is regulation going to keep up with the technology or is it going to hold it back and, and, and make it tougher? So I think there's benefit to having SEC registered funds like the interval fund, but you know, somewhere, something a little better than what we're currently offering. Well, Steve, thank you so much for all that wealth of information. It was truly a pleasure to speak with you today. And I believe we're going to be seeing you at a future, a lot of future events. So I hope our listeners get to catch and learn from you some more. Well, sounds great. I look forward to seeing you and uh, thank you for having me and catch you at uh, a conference in the near future. <laughs> sounds good. Thanks, Steve. Okay. Thanks, Tanya. Thank you for listening to this month's episode of the CFA Society San Francisco podcast. We hope you enjoyed the engaging discussion. 
Join us next month for another new episode.